I like what Max Lucado writes on the back of his book, He Still Moves Stones, referring to some of the encounters that Jesus had with people during his earthly ministry. Lucado writes, these are not just Sunday school stories. They're not romantic fables or somewhere over the rainbow illusions. These are historic moments in which a real God met real people who were in real pain. And these stories were reminded that the God who spoke still speaks. The God who came still comes. He comes into your world. He comes to do what you can't. He comes to move stones that you can't budge. He still moves stones. In Luke chapter 2, we see several of these types of scenes, historic moments in which a real God met real people who were in real pain. Now, something that is interesting is that each person here in Luke chapter 7 are in different places in regards to their faith in Jesus. We have a Roman centurion who is noted for his great faith, a grieving widow who probably lost her faith, a perplexed prophet in a prison cell who is confused in his faith, a group of hard-hearted religious leaders who had no faith at all, and a repentant sinner who is given saving faith. I think it's safe to say that each person here this morning is represented by one or more of the people that we're going to look at here in Luke chapter 7. And what I want you to note is the amazing compassion of Jesus as he encounters people in difficult circumstances and as he encounters people in different places in their faith. There are several different Greek words for compassion, but the one that Luke uses here in this chapter is a word the Greeks would use for the deepest level of compassion. The Greek word means to be moved with great sympathy and compassion for the suffering others with a deep desire to help them. What makes this word unique is that it's not just a feeling of sympathy or compassion. It's a feeling that is connected with a deep desire to do something to help the person in need. You see, we often have a feeling of sympathy and compassion for someone's difficult circumstances, but it often doesn't lead us to act upon those feelings. It often doesn't lead us to do what we can to help that person in their difficult situation. Now, that's not the kind of compassion Jesus had. Jesus didn't just feel compassion, he acted upon it. He reached out to people with compassion in a way that helped them with their needs. So as we look at the compassion of Jesus that is displayed in this chapter, I hope we can see that compassion shouldn't just be a feeling. It should also be an action. It should be something that we act upon to help the person that's in need. So let's look at the first encounter that Jesus has and the compassion that he shows. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now when he concluded all the sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, a centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. 
And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and saw, said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to their house, found the servant well, who had been sick. Luke starts off telling us that when Jesus finished his sermon, he entered Capernaum. Here's a picture of Capernaum that I took while in Israel. It's on the Sea of Galilee. Now, when Jesus enters Capernaum, he's met by some elders of the Jews that were sent by a Roman centurion. And the reason the Roman centurion sent these men to Jesus was to ask Jesus if he would heal his servant who was about to die. Now, so far in Luke, we have seen that Jesus has healed multitudes of people many times. And oftentimes we're told that he healed everyone who came to him. So it would have been very clear that Jesus was someone who is quite willing to heal people. But notice what these Jewish elders say to Jesus. They say, the Roman centurion is deserving for you to come to him because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Notice these Jewish elders feel they have to give Jesus a reason for why this Roman centurion deserves Jesus to come and heal his servant. And the reason they felt that way was because the Jews despised the Romans, especially Roman soldiers like this Roman centurion. So they probably thought that Jesus wouldn't come to help a Roman soldier unless they convinced Jesus that this man was deserving. Basically, they tell Jesus, this isn't a normal Roman soldier. He actually deserves your help because he loves the nation of Israel and has built us a synagogue. So Jesus goes with these Jewish elders, and when they get close to the Roman centurion's house, the Roman centurion sends some people to meet Jesus. And he sends them with a message to give to Jesus, and the message was this, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. Here we see some great humility from this Roman centurion. The Jewish elders were trying to make the Roman centurion look like he was worthy of Jesus' help because he loved Israel and built a synagogue. But the Roman centurion wants to make very clear he doesn't feel worthy at all of Jesus' help. Now what the Roman centurion says next in his message is quite amazing. He says, But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. A Roman centurion was a high-ranking soldier who had authority over a hundred soldiers. So this man understood something about authority. He knew that all he had to do was tell a soldier to do something, and the authority he had would cause that soldier to obey. Now, what this Roman centurion recognizes about Jesus is that Jesus has complete authority over sickness. So all Jesus has to do is say the word, and the Roman centurion's servant will be healed. This Roman centurion recognized that Jesus' words could heal just like Jesus' touch could. He recognized the power and authority in Jesus' words. Now, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at the Roman centurion's faith. Then Jesus said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Jesus marveled at the faith of this Roman centurion, at the faith of this Gentile man. He marveled that this man had so much faith that he, to, he believed Jesus' words had the authority to heal his servant. 
So after Jesus marvels at the faith of the Roman centurion, he shows compassion on the Roman centurion's servant and heals him. Now, I want you to notice that the Jewish elders thought they needed to convince Jesus of how worthy the Roman centurion was to get Jesus' help. The Roman centurion realized that he wasn't worthy of Jesus' help, but he didn't have to be worthy because he had faith. And it was his faith, not his worthiness, that enabled him to receive Jesus' help. I think too often we're like the Jewish elders trying to convince Jesus that we're worthy of his help because of all the good things we have done for him. But we need to recognize that Jesus doesn't help us because we are worthy of it. He helps us because we place our faith in him. So that's the first encounter we see. Jesus demonstrating his compassion on this great Roman centurion's servant. Now let's see the second encounter. Verse 11. Now it happened in the day that he went into the city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. So the day after Jesus had the encounter with the Roman centurion, he leaves Capernaum and goes to a city called Nain. Nain is about 20 miles south of Capernaum. Now, when Jesus gets to Nain, he comes across a funeral procession. Now, the death of someone is always a sad and tragic thing, but this situation that Jesus comes across was even more tragic. And the reason why it's so tragic is because we're told that the person who had died was the only son of his mother, and his mother was a widow. So here is a woman whose husband has died, which made her a widow, and all she had left was her only son, and now her only son had died as well. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, in that culture, not having a husband or a son meant that there was no one to take care of this woman. So she was going to be a poor, destitute widow for life. So Jesus sees this woman in a horrible circumstance, and we're told that he had compassion on her. Now remember the Greek word that Luke uses here speaks of a compassion for the suffering of others with a deep desire to help them. Now I'm sure that almost everyone at that funeral had compassion for this mother who lost her son. And I'm sure that many of them wanted to put that compassion into action and do something, but there wasn't much they could do. Most of you here this morning have most likely been to a funeral and knew the person who had just lost their loved one. You see that person suffering, you see that person in pain, and you realize, you know what, there's not much you can do to help. You can share your condolences, you can give them a shoulder to cry on, you can do what you can, you ultimately wish you could do more. Because you see, the reality is you're limited in what you can offer them. What they ultimately need, you don't have. I mentioned earlier that oftentimes we have the feeling of compassion, but we're not willing to act upon that feeling and help the person in need. 
But sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where we have compassion and we want to do something to help, but we're limited in what we can do. What the person needs, we don't have it to give to them. This is what's so great about Jesus' compassion because there is no limit to what he can do. You and I have a limitation, a lot of limitation to how much we can help others, but Jesus doesn't have any limit. Notice what Jesus' compassion leads him to do for this grieving mother. Jesus goes to the coffin and says, Young man, I say to you, arise. And then the dead man sat up and began to speak, and then Jesus presented him to his mother. Jesus gave this mother her son back. He gave this mother something that no one else had the power to give because there is no limit to what Jesus can do. So often we look to other people for help, but we don't look to Jesus. But we need to understand that Jesus is much greater help than any person will ever be. Because every person that you come to for help is limited in what they can do for you, but Jesus has no limits in what he can do to help. There is no situation too big for Jesus to help you with. He can can handle anything you're going through. Before having Scarlett, Jenny had two miscarriages. The first miscarriage was really hard, uh, and the second one was even harder. During our time of grief, we had a lot of people trying to comfort us and help us, and we're very grateful for the love they showed us. But the reality was, none of those people had what we needed. They were all limited in what they could do for us. What we ultimately needed was something that only Jesus could could provide. We needed His comfort. We needed His peace that surpasses understanding. And the great thing was, Jesus had compassion on us and gave us what we needed. If we only looked to people to help us in our time of grief, we wouldn't have been able to get through it. We got through that difficult time because we looked to Jesus, the one who was able to give us what we needed. You know, Jesus says something so encouraging in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. He says, Come to me, all who you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're going through a difficult thing right now, bring it to Jesus and he will have compassion on you and give you the rest and help you need. So Jesus has compassion on the Roman centurion and he has compassion on the widow in name. Now let's see the third person Jesus has compassion on, verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, And to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf are hearing, and the dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. After Jesus raises the widow's son from the dead, John the Baptist's disciples come and tell John what Jesus did. And then John sends two of his disciples to Jesus with a message. 
Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, Matthew's Gospel tells us that John the Baptist asked this question from prison. And the reason John was put in prison was because he told King Herod that he was in sin. Now, this question seems quite odd coming from John the Baptist. Are you the Messiah, or should we be looking for another? This is coming from the man who prepared the way from Jesus, from the man who was the one who baptized Jesus and saw the Holy Spirit come down upon Jesus and who heard the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the man who pointed Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John the Baptist seemed to be very clear that Jesus was the Messiah. So why does he have these doubts? Why does he ask this question, are you the Messiah or should we be looking for another? Now, something we need to understand is that the Jews at that time believed that the Messiah was going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire. The Messiah was going to rule and reign and defeat Israel's enemies. This was something that the disciples were waiting for as well. They were constantly arguing about who would be the greatest in this earthly kingdom that Jesus would establish there in Israel. But what they missed was that there were going to be two comings of Jesus. The first wasn't to rule and reign and conquer Israel's enemies. It was to give his life for the sins of the world. But the Bible tells us there will be a second coming of Jesus. And that is when he will rule and reign and conquer all of Israel's enemies. And that coming, I believe, is very soon. So it seems that John the Baptist is waiting for a Messiah that's going to overthrow Rome, who's going to conquer Israel's enemies, a Messiah who would get him out of prison. But as he sits there in prison and none of those things are happening, he starts to get confused in his faith. So John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus with the question, are you the Messiah or should we be looking for another? Now, Jesus could have been very harsh with John. He could have rebuked John. He could have said something like, What kind of prophet are you who doubts who I am? How is it you don't know the answer to that question? Where is your faith? But Jesus doesn't say those things. Once again, we see Jesus showing compassion. Jesus responds to John's disciples by saying, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor of the gospel preach to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Instead of rebuking John, Jesus just says, tell John the things you have seen and heard me do, and he'll know the answer to that question. A lot of times we're like John the Baptist and get confused in our faith. We expect Jesus to do a certain thing or to respond to our circumstances in a certain way, and when he doesn't, We get confused in our faith, and our faith weakens. But something important for us to remember is even when our faith is confused or weak, it doesn't keep Jesus from having compassion on us. Jesus knows our weakness and failures and still has compassion on us. Even when you are struggling in your faith, come to Jesus and he will meet you where you're at and show you his compassion. Now, Jesus' compassion towards John doesn't stop there. He turns to the crowd and tells them how great John the Baptist is. Notice what he says in verse 24. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. 
But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus says, concerning John the Baptist, who did you go out into the wilderness to see? A prophet? Well, John was more than a prophet. He was the one that led the way for Jesus. Then Jesus goes on to say something very important. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Jesus says John the Baptist was the greatest prophet there ever has been. Now, that's a pretty big compliment when you think of all the great prophets of the Old Testament. But then Jesus goes on to say something very important. But those who are least in the kingdom of God are greater than John the Baptist. You see, something important to understand is that John the Baptist was the last prophet before the coming of Christ. He was the last prophet still under the old covenant of the law. Those a part of the kingdom of God are those who believe in Jesus or are now under the new covenant of grace. Jesus says, the least in my kingdom, the least under the new covenant of grace, are greater than the greatest under the old covenant of the law. Now, Jesus isn't saying that as believers we are better people than John was or that we did greater things than John did. This isn't a comparison of people. It's a comparison of position. The reason people in the kingdom of God are greater is because they have a greater position before God. Our position is based on what Jesus has done for us, not on what we do for God. So what Jesus wants us to understand is that under the new covenant, we're far better off than people under the old covenant were. So much so that the least in the new covenant are greater than the greatest in the old covenant. Because under the new covenant, your position is based on what Jesus did. And under the old covenant, your position is based on what you did. Now notice the response of the crowd to what Jesus says. Verse 29. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. There are two different responses to what Jesus says to the people when he tells them in his kingdom they're greater than those than John the Baptist. Now remember John's baptism was a baptism of repentance to prepare people to repent of their sins and accept Jesus as the Messiah. So those who received John's baptism and repented of their sins were blessed by this statement of Jesus because they were ready to accept him and be a part of his kingdom. But those who rejected the baptism of John and wouldn't repent and prepare themselves for the Messiah, like the religious leaders, like the Pharisees, they didn't like this misstatement at all. Because we're told that they rejected the will of God for themselves. You see, the will of God was that all of Israel would repent at the preaching of John. That all would be baptized and all would believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But the Pharisees wouldn't repent of their sin and believe in Jesus, so they rejected the will of God for themselves. You know, people do this all the time today. The Bible says that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the sad reality is many reject God. Many don't repent. And so they reject the will of God for their lives. Jesus goes on to reveal the hardness of heart that the Pharisees had. Verse 31. And the Lord said, 
To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We play the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourn to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Basically what Jesus is saying here is that if the message is unwelcome, nothing the messenger can say or do will be accepted. John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and the Pharisees rejected him, saying he, was a, he had a demon. Jesus came in the exact opposite way, eating and drinking, and the Pharisees reject him, saying, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Ultimately, the Pharisees were hardened to the message that they needed to repent. So no matter who came to them or how they came, they weren't going to accept it. But notice Jesus has compassion on them as he continues to try and help them see their sin and their need for him. Trying to help people see that they are a sinner who needs Jesus' salvation is one of the most compassionate things you can do. Because the Bible is very clear. If someone stays hardened to the message of the gospel and won't accept the salvation that Jesus offers, when they die, they will go to hell. One of the least compassionate things you can do is give up on the lost and not share with them the gospel anymore. So first, Jesus has compassion on the Roman centurion who had great faith. Second, he has compassion on the widow in Nain who perhaps lost her faith. Third, he has compassion on John the Baptist who was confused in his faith. Fourth, he has compassion on the Pharisees who had no faith at all. And now let's look at the fifth person Jesus has compassion on. Verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So a Pharisee invites Jesus over for dinner, and Jesus goes to his house. And there's a woman who is described as a sinner. Now this isn't just saying that she was a sinner like all of us are sinners. This is saying that she was a particularly well-known sinner. Most commentators believe that she was most likely a prostitute. So this well-known sinful woman hears that Jesus is going to be eating at this Pharisee's house. So she decided to go there to the house to see Jesus. And she brings with her an alabaster flask of oil. And when she gets to Jesus, she starts to weep and her tears fall on Jesus' feet. And she starts cleaning Jesus' feet with her tears and wiping his feet with her hair. And then she starts kissing Jesus' feet. And then she anoints Jesus' feet with oil that she brought with her. When the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, he thought to himself, if Jesus really were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. This Pharisee concluded Jesus couldn't be a prophet because if he was, he would know what kind of woman this was. If he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't let her touch him. Jesus responds to this Pharisee's thought with a story. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. 
So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii and the other fifty. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Jesus tells a story of two men who were in debt, and neither of them could pay back their debtor. One of them owed a lot more money than the other, but both of their debts were freely forgiven. Jesus asked Simon the Pharisee, Who do you think will love the man who forgave their debt the most? The Pharisee responded with, The one who was forgiven the most, which was the right answer. Jesus told this story to make the point that the more you're forgiven, the more you will love. Now, after making this point, Jesus goes on to share something important about this woman and about Simon the Pharisee. Verse 44, Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In that culture, there were four, three sorry, common courtesies that you would do for your guests when they entered your house. First, you would kiss them, then you would wash their feet, and then you would anoint their head with oil. Now, this Pharisee did none of those things for Jesus, which showed a complete lack of love for him. The woman, on the other hand, did all of these things for Jesus in quite a dramatic way, showing her great love for Jesus. And Jesus responds with great compassion on this woman and forgives her of her sins. Notice all the Pharisees saw was a sinful woman that he believed should not have been allowed to touch Jesus. There was no compassion at all from this Pharisee. But Jesus saw a sinful woman who needed forgiveness, and he showed her great compassion. Something I love about Jesus is that he has compassion on sinners like you and me. Jesus never turns away a sinner who is seeking to love him and repent of their sins. Jesus shows repentant sinners compassion. A compassion that isn't just a feeling of sympathy, but it's a willingness to help meet the sinner's need. And Jesus has a limitless ability to meet that need. When you and I come to Jesus with our sin, there is no limit to his forgiveness. There are no sins that he is not able or willing to forgive. Something I think that is very interesting to note is that Matthew tells us that Jesus taught the multitude something right before he goes to Simon the Pharisee's house for dinner. And the last thing that Jesus says is in that teaching is what we looked at earlier. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I believe that this sinful woman heard Jesus' message, and she did what Jesus said to do and came to him. She found out where Jesus was and she came to him because she needed rest and forgiveness. And when she came to Jesus, he showed her compassion and gave her what she needed. The sinful woman came to Jesus and received saving faith. The main thing I want us to understand this morning is that we serve a God full 
of compassion. Psalm 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Psalm 145.8 says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. God sees what you're going through and He sympathizes with it and He wants to help you with what you're going through. And what we need to remember is there are no limits to how God can help. Whatever you're going through right now, God is there for you. He is there full of compassion to give you what you need. All you have to do is come to Him. You might have great faith. You might have lost your faith. You might be confused in your faith. You might have no faith at all or you might be in need of saving faith. No matter where you're at this morning, just come to Jesus and He will meet you where you're at and have compassion on you. God is so compassionate to us and He desires us to show the same kind of compassion to others. To not just have a feeling of sympathy for the person in need, but to also be willing to do what we can to help them. And when we can't help them because of our limitations, we need to point them to the one that can. We need to point them to Jesus who has no limits to how He can help us. Let's pray. Father, we are so gracious and so thankful and so (laughs) blessed by the fact that You have so much compassion. I thank You that You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that the compassion that You show 2,000 years ago is the same compassion You show us today. Lord, help us to know that You are always there for us that we can bring anything to you, that no matter where we're at in our faith with you, that we can come to you, come to you with our sin, with our needs, seek forgiveness, seek repentance, seek your help. Be with us, help us, encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.